This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au God, we thank you for the way that you hear. We thank you that you are the God who bends the, your ear towards the prayers of your people, that you love it when we pray. God, we thank you for the way that you have been answering prayers. We thank you for the way that we have seen you say yes. God, we pray that you would continue to do that. Please multiply the answers to our prayers, the yeses, God. We long to see you work. And so we pray that you would continue to do that. We pray now that you would help us to sit humbly under your word, refusing to believe the lie that we're wiser than you, knowing that your word is authoritative, that it is like a two-edged sword. God, we pray as we see this glimpse of the early church this morning with its mess and brokenness and sin, that you would encourage us, that we would see a picture of a redeemed community that is united together and equal. We pray, God, that you would help us to live this out for your glory in this city. And those who agreed said, Amen. I wonder if you have ever been caught out lying. Anyone ever been caught out lying? Put your hand up if you've ever been caught out lying. Good. The rest of you who didn't get put your hand up, you just got caught out lying because we've all done that. And um, I wanted to share a story with you this morning that I kind of hesitate to share because it's, um, it's actually pretty embarrassing, but um, I'm going to share it anyway. In year seven, um, I was... Uh, I was dating a girl, although I don't really know what dating looked like in year seven other than um, everyone knew that that was happening because we didn't sit next to each other in lunch. We didn't talk to each other. We didn't even hold hands, but we were dating. And uh, I, went on, um, I went on youth camp over the, the, the Easter holidays and um, decided that I didn't quite really like her, that I wanted to break up with her. I didn't really know how. Uh, and so I decided the best way to do that was to just tell some of her friends that I'd started seeing another girl on youth camp that she was really, really pretty and I liked her better. Um, uh, like year seven, all right, come on. So, um, but what happened was um, she found out and um, we're sitting at lunch. I'm sitting at the end of the oval with all the boys. Um, we're eating our lunch and she comes over with a bunch of the girls walking up to me and I'm like, all right, here we go. So I'm like, cool, this is it. This, I'm gonna, this is going to happen right in front of the boys. I'm going to get some cred here, some points for being the man. And I stand up and she walks up to me and she, I think she wanted to slap me, but she somehow made a fist and just sort of <laughs> sideswiped my face and knocked me to the ground and I burst into tears in front of all my mates. I got caught out lying. You know, um... As embarrassing as that story is, and the consequences of my lies were in that moment, the seriousness of the lies that happen in Acts chapter 5 are far graver than that. This is the first recorded instance of sin entering the community of God's people. Now, sure, there was sin there before, but this time Luke decides to record it and he puts it in the narrative and he wants us to see that he is not recording um, you know, this perfect picture of the, the story of the church. He wants you to know that as you read this, you know that this is history. This is actually happening because he's not painting just a good picture. He's showing you how the church is messed up and broken and full of sin. 
And what is recorded here is really an amalgamation of a number of sins. Hypocrisy and greed and deceit and misappropriation of finances all rolled up into this one lie that this guy Ananias and his wife Sapphira tells. And so we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 4, at the end of Acts chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, go there now. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I'm going to read um, of this account of the, the first recorded sin of the early church. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It's kind of good news before we get to the bad news. So chapter 4, verse 32. And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were, was his own, but had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We see this picture here of the early church as they united and equal. It says there in verse 32 that they're of one heart and one soul. And we've seen this already as we've read through the narrative of Acts. In chapter 1, verse 14, we see that they are deeply united together in prayer of one accord. In chapter 2, verse 42, that all the believers had everything in common. They, they were together. They had things in common. They gathered together regularly. They shared with meals. They shared in their generosity. There is a deep unity and equality that exists in the church. And that's not because they're all mates. It's not because they're all part of the same circle, same ethnic background, same socioeconomic background. That is simply because of the gospel. The good news of Jesus has radically birthed, I would say miraculously birthed, a community that is united and where there is equality. So strong is this sense of unity that it says there in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them. Now that's a statement to me that there is a sense of diversity in the church, that there are some needy people and that there are some wealthy people. And those who had gave to those who didn't. Now as you hear that story, don't you want to be part of a church like that? Don't you want to be part of a community like that where there is a sense of unity and there is a sense of oneness and we're together and we're meeting each other's needs? I, I do. I'd like to be part of a church like that. And we can. By the whole power of the Spirit, we can seek to live this type of story out in our gospel communities, in our church. And I think, by God's grace, we are. But as we read this, we, we immediately hit this question of, is this prescriptive or is this simply descriptive? Now, if you don't know what those words mean, uh, I don't know if this blog is live at the moment yet or, or, or not, or if it's still coming, but um, James Wong has written up a blog about how we can read and interpret the book of Acts. Because we read a bunch of things, and as we read it, do we find a principle that we ought to live by and apply, or do we find some examples of a principle that they live by? And this is the example that they've given. And so what we see happening here in Acts chapter 4 is a principle and an example. The principle is this. 
that you ought to care for, love and meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. The example is that the early church sold their possessions and gave to meet those needs. And we need to figure out what examples we are going to step into by being prayerful and being led by the Spirit and considering the things that He has given us that we can meet the needs of others. But we need to be careful here. This is not a Christian version of communism. This is not some weird twisted cult where you join the the, uh, community of faith and then you sign over your credit card, your bank statement, all of your money, the title to your house. That's a cult. This is not a cult. This is not some form of Christian communism. This is a gospel, a beautiful gospel-inspired generosity and meeting the needs of others. This is voluntary. They still had ownership of their possessions. They weren't demanded or obligated or required to give of these things. They gave them as a free will offering out of love, motivated by love for the need of a brother or sister in Christ. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know because when Peter says to Ananias, we'll read the story in a second, when Ananias sells a field, Peter says to him, when you owned the field, wasn't it yours? And when you sold the field, weren't the proceeds yours? You see, they still had, they still believed in private ownership of property. Their money was still their own, but there was this deep sense of, in fact, God has blessed us with all of these things. And we're going to use this to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters within this community. Paul says a similar thing in Galatians 6.10. He says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so something happens to us when we understand the good news of the gospel of what God has done for us. It changes our disposition towards our finances, our money, and our possessions. We hold them loosely. We see that they're all a gift from God that he calls us to steward them for his glory and for the good of others. And that is profoundly motivated by the gospel. So church, we have a duty. Now, that, that duty is a responsibility because we are family. That's who we are in Christ. We are family. That's why we say constantly, time and time again here at Anchor, we are a family of missionaries. That's what our gospel communities ought to look like. Family, not a loose commitment to a bunch of acquaintances. Family. But whilst you might not be obliged to sell your house or to sell your block of land, or I mean, that just seems ludicrous in Sydney to sell any piece of property right now. If you've got it, hold on to it. You'll be a billionaire in 20 years' time. But we are called, we are called to care for our brothers and sisters. But I think we're actually not good at doing that. And we're actually not good at asking for help, are we? We might be sitting in our gospel community and struggling financially or struggling with something and we're not willing to tell our family. Why? Because we're, we're so proud, we're so clinging to self-sufficiency and a sense of individualism and a sense of, I'm not whole if I can't do this myself. That's what it looks like. And so maybe we need to get better at doing that. You know, in, in certain um, South Pacific cultures, if there is someone in your family who is unable to have children, there is an expectation that someone else in your family would give you their child. Isn't that crazy? And so you'll have some certain South Pacific families where um, 
you know, auntie and uncle are actually mum and dad and, and your mum and dad are actually your auntie and uncle because they've given a child to a family member who couldn't have one for, for, for whatever reason. Our Western individualism has so shaped our view of family that often we're not very good at offering help and receiving help. But isn't that what the gospel is about? Coming to God with empty hands and saying, I need help, and then receiving it in the gospel. So we need to get better at doing that. And it is only the gospel that can achieve this. You can't manufacture this. This is something that United Nations have been dreaming of. This is something that cults have demanded, that communism has demanded, and the gospel has freely birthed this out of God's people. This joyful sense of I'm willing to give and meet the needs of others and develop a sense of equality in this community. Now, for me, that is one significant demonstration that the gospel is real, is it not? That eternity is real, that we, we view our finances, our possessions, our property in light of the gospel, in light of eternity, that God has been generous to us. It, if those things aren't true, then we're crazy. That's real. And you might be sitting here, you're not a believer, you think, uh-huh, you guys are all crazy, giving away 10% or 20 whatever you give away, that is crazy. It is, unless the gospel is true. And I believe the generosity that has been stirred amongst God's people is one significant evidence of a transformed life, of the reality of God's spirit-changing people. Now, this was um, super evident to a friend of mine, Sarah, before she became a Christian. She was, um, or she may be a very new Christian. She was attending church and she heard the, um, a lady get up at church and talk about this project that she was working on. She was translating a, a Christian book into Polish so that she could send that book back to her homeland and people in the Polish church could use this book as a resource. And she was asking if anyone in the church would be willing to help her meet the costs of having this book published and, and whatnot. And this girl, Sarah, one of her friends went up to this lady afterwards and said, here's $50 to go towards the publishing of this book. Now, 50 bucks is not much, but for Sarah, it just blew her away. She's like, why would you do that? You don't even know this. You don't even know that lady. You don't know these people. You don't know what they're going to do with their money. She thought it was ludicrous. And yet that is the type of powerful witness that the gospel does in the lives of people as we be, begin to see that all of our things are not our own. They're simply on loan to us from God and we will use it to build his kingdom as opportunity arises. And so what Luke does is he gives us two examples of this kind of living. One positive example and one negative example. The positive example is the example of Barnabas in verse 36 and 37 who brings the proceeds of the sale of his property and lays it at the apostles' feet and they use it to meet people's needs as it arises. And then Luke gives us a negative example of that and that's the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. And so let's go to Acts chapter 5 verse 1. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men arose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. She said, yes, for that much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. And the question is, what is the sin? What is the sin that we see happening there in Ananias and Sapphira's life? The sin isn't that they would keep some of the sale of their house or their land for themselves. Their sin is that they would deceive as they brought the proceeds to the church. Their sin is that they wanted the glory of being generous without the cost of actually doing it to the full extent. And in fact, that word there that Peter uses, you kept back, for, you kept back some of it for yourself. That word is a word that is used of misappropriating finances. And so Peter here, chances are maybe they've agreed to the terms of the sale and um, Ananias and Sapphira know that they're going to sell their property and bring the proceeds, but they are deceptive. They bring only a portion of it. And however Peter knows, he knows, maybe the Spirit prompts him in that. And the sin here is a, an amalgamation of hypocrisy and a love of money and deceit and lying And Jesus says, does he not, that you can't have two masters? You cannot serve both God and money? And here we see Ananias bowing before his God and compromising his decision, compromising the agreement that he had made, shortchanging the church on what they had agreed to give. And at the core of this sin is his love of money, which leads to him lying not only to the church, not only to Peter and the apostles, but lying to God himself. Did you hear what Peter said there? He says, Ananias, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now let me just go walk about for a second on the Holy Spirit here because Peter believes that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is both personal and divine. And if you pick that up there, little throwaway terms there, but Peter believes that the Holy Spirit is both personal and divine. He's personal because he can be lied to. You cannot lie to an impersonal force. You can't lie to gravity, for example. You can only lie to a person. And so we believe that the Holy Spirit is not just some force out there, some power. We believe that he is a person. And we also believe that he is divine. Do you notice what Peter says to Ananias? He said, you haven't just lied to the Spirit. And in fact, he equates lying to the Spirit with lying to God himself. If you believe in anything less than a spirit who is personal and divine, you're not believing in the same type of spirit that Peter and the apostles in the early church believed in. 
He is both personal and divine. He can be lied to. He is co-equal with the Father. But let me just speak to the elephant in the room for a second on this, on this story. Because here's the thing. As we read this story, you think, how is this fair? How is it fair that, that they could just simply shortchange the church and then die for it? The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, does it? It doesn't seem fair that Ananias and Sapphira would die for a lie. Now, it's important to say that this is a very exceptional case of divine judgment. In fact, we ought to say that God almost never does this in the Scriptures. That He would deliver His judgment immediately like that. This is a case of um, exception, but I think when we, when we approach this and think, this is so unfair, I think we underestimate four things. The first thing we underestimate is the holiness of God. That God is perfect, that He is righteous in every way, that there is not a corner of darkness in God's character anywhere, that He is holy. And if He were not to judge a sin like this, in fact, He would cease to be God, He would cease to be holy, He would cease to be just and perfect. God is holy. He is holier than we give Him credit for. In fact, if He swept this sin under the carpet and pretended it didn't exist, he would cease to be worthy of our worship. God is holy. He is perfect. And he cannot let sin confront him and be left undealt with. The first thing we underestimate is the holiness of God. The second thing we underestimate is the depth of sin. You see, this lie is not just a white lie. This is a lie to the face of God. This is a lie to the Holy Spirit. And sin is not trivial. Sin is not trivial. Sin is taking God off the throne and putting yourself there. Sin is spitting in the face of God's authority over us. It is idolatry. And at the heart of this sin, and really at the heart of every sin we commit, is a choice not to worship God, but to worship something else. You see, sin is not simply just the outward actions, the symptoms. Sin is the inner motivations that lurk in our heart. We underestimate the depth of our sin, the holiness of God. Thirdly, we underestimate the gracious patience of God. You see, if we understand the holiness of God and we understand the depth of our sin then we ought to be blown away every single time that God withholds his judgment immediately. We ought to be blown away every time God withholds his judgment, does not punish us instantly every single time. But God is patient. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. See, we know that the, the scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. In fact, if we want true justice, true justice is God would deal with us as we deserve. And that's death. And yet God in his patience and his graciousness looks over that time and time and time and time again. And yet in this instance, he chooses not to. And the final thing I think we underestimate is the importance of the holiness of God's church. The importance of the holiness of God's church. 
See, I think sometimes we're too indifferent about sin in our lives and in the life of the community. Jesus has purchased us as a spotless bride without blemish, without stain. That's the vision that we have of the church. And God cares too much about the purity of his church to allow sin to take root and fester. And so he deals with it. You know, one of the greatest criticisms against the church is that we're a people full of hypocrites. And there's a sense where that's true, right? All of us, to one degree or another, are a hypocrite. But God cannot deal with this hypocrisy here. And this is a strong statement. He cares that the Spirit sees our sin. God knows what happens. And He does not want His bride to be a bride of hypocrisy. Oh, that we would live that out. Oh, that we would see the depths of God's concern and care for the purity of the bride. And so as we come to this incident and, and that that thought arises in our hearts and it, it arose in my heart as I read it. This doesn't seem fair. Maybe we need to come back and reevaluate the holiness of God, the depth of sin, the gracious patience of God and the importance of the holiness of the church. See, this incident here serves as a warning for God's church, for God's people, that God knows what happens. He sees it and he cares so seriously and the response to this, it says there twice that there was great fear, literally mega fear. Not the kind of fear like, gosh, I hope I don't do anything wrong and God will kill me. Not, not that type of fear, but this reverent awe that God is holy, that we're his people, that he wants us to be like him. Be holy, therefore, as your heavenly father is holy. Be perfect, therefore, like your heavenly father is perfect. Now, that seems like an impossible standard, does it not, as a church? We can't do that. How do we do that? We only do that in the light of the reality that Jesus has paid for our sin. That the very sin that we committed this morning on the way to church, or we will commit after our gathering, Jesus has paid for that. That he has washed us clean. And as a church, we need to get good at walking in the forgiveness that is ours. That is only possible because Jesus has paid and has set us free. And as a result of that, we have this beautiful picture that comes forth of the church. So I want to go back to verse 32 with you now and paint this picture of the early church that I would love us to consider how we might be able to live this out. So chapter 4 verse 32 says this, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but had everything in common. That is the type of countercultural Christian community that speaks wonders to a world that is obsessed with money. Tim Keller says this, uh, it's such a wonderful quote. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in, its way, in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everyone their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their, their body and gave practically everybody their money. That is the type of countercultural community that will radically impact our world. 
But the sad reality is that sometimes that's even a countercultural reality in some churches. And my question is, is that true of us? And I don't think so because I think what we have seen is beautiful examples of this happening. And so I just want to give you a couple of examples of how we've lived this out as a way of inspiring us to do that moving forward today. We've had people from our community, our church, who have been involved in car accidents, who have had no money to pay for their insurance, their excess, and people have stepped in and paid their excess so that they can get a new car and pay off the damages to the other car that they've caused. Thousands of dollars. We've had someone in our church, I don't know who this person is, but someone in our church donated thousands of dollars to someone who needed some crisis care and counselling for a long period of time. They donated thousands of dollars so this person could go and see a a counsellor and a psychologist to work on trauma that existed in their life. As a result of that giving, this person has been healed and set free. We've seen people who have been given free cars. We've seen people who have been given cars that are worth thousands of dollars for a few hundred bucks because someone's been in need. And there's a brother or sister in Christ who has met that need. We've seen people, we've seen, um, I mean, the standout of this was when um, Rich Lishman passed away a number of years ago. And Viv, who was a part of our community, part of Stephen Nat's um, GC in, in Ashfield, was left with a, a newborn child as a widow and no job and no way of being able to provide for her. And we saw a church community, not just us, and not just the church community, friends and family who loved Viv, who, who um, had no connection with the church, who weren't believers, but over $20,000 was raised and given to Viv so that she could be on her feet and not have to worry about raising her son. We've seen radical generosity. We've seen people paying rent for others because they had a tight month. We've seen people buying meals, simple little things like I'm not going to come out today because it's been a tight month. Come anyway, I'll shout you lunch. I'll shout you dinner. And um, we've seen gospel communities providing meals every single week. Now, I tried to figure out some maths. I've got no idea if this is right because I don't do the shopping and I don't know how much it costs to cook for a gospel community. But if it costs anywhere between 40 to 60 bucks a week to provide a meal for 12 to 20 people, that means that in any given year, our gospel communities are providing $2,000 to $3,000 worth of dinners for people. That's generosity. We are seeing this happen in the context of our community. And so as we go out today, my encouragement to you is, what has God blessed you with that you can be a blessing to others with? What has God blessed your gospel community with that you can be a blessing to others What has God blessed our church with that we can be a blessing to others? Because all of the things that God has given us are really at his disposal for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of this city coming to know Jesus. We're going to respond in a number of ways this morning. The first way we're going to respond is by praying. And our prayer team would love to pray for you. Maybe you've got a need this morning that you want to bring to them. They would love to hear that for you and and bring that to the church. If we can meet that in some way, we will do that. But our prayer team are going to come slightly forward. They're going to actually stand on the sides here and you can identify them with an orange lanyard. 
We've recognized that some of you don't actually know who's on the prayer team and who's not. So you go up the back and there's 50 people up there. You don't know who to go to to ask for prayer. And so our prayer team is actually going to come forward a little bit closer to the communion stations. And you can identify our prayer team with the orange lanyards. They would love to pray for you. Whatever need you have this morning, please, our prayer team would love to pray for you. We have seen God answer prayer. So avail yourself of them. The second way we're going to respond is in worship. As the band leads us, we're going to declare the praises of God. We're going to give thanks to Him. And the final way is we're going to respond by the Lord's Supper. And this is a meal for those of you who love Jesus, for those of you who have encountered His his body, His blood that was shed and broken for your forgiveness. If that's you, if you love Jesus, then we invite you to come forward and remember this meal as you dip the bread into the grape juice and eat, remembering what God has done for you on your behalf. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. And we're going to respond together as a church. So let's stand together, church. God, we thank you for your abundant, gracious generosity to us in the gospel. God, you've been good to us beyond what we deserve. We thank you that you have given us your best, your precious son, God, you could not give us any more. And God, we want to respond with hearts that are thankful and generous, that have been radically transformed by this good news. Would you help us to see every blessing that you've given us as something that is on loan to be used for your glory, your kingdom? Would you stir in us by your spirit this type of radically generous, united, equal community that we see. Would we be a church like that, God? And as we do that, God, would that scream to a culture, Jesus is real and He has transformed us. We pray this in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen.